When injury takes you out of the game, it's time for your team to step up. At Alina Health Orthopedics, you'll get expert care backed by a whole health system of providers. With convenient locations, virtual options, and an app that gives you 24-7 access to your records, test results, and care team, you're always close to the care you need. Schedule now at alinahealth.org slash ortho. afternoon or evening depending on when this finds you welcome to the sound of the loons podcast presented by alina health orthopedics i'm steve mcpherson and this week we're bringing together two guests i'm really looking forward to talking to writer myron medcalf of espn and the star tribune and midfielder jacory hayes of your minnesota united february is black history month and we're doing some podcast episodes with black entrepreneurs athletes writers thinkers etc uh to celebrate that history uh, I'm hoping that listeners of this podcast are familiar with Jacory Hayes, but just so everyone's getting kind of the introduction here, Maryland native, is that correct? Yes. Yeah, Maryland. Okay. Bowie, Maryland. <laughs> Played for Wake Forest <laughs> before being selected by FC Dallas with the 18th pick of the 2017 MLS Super Draft. Played his first year with MNUFC last season. He is also a proponent of tucking his shirt in on the pitch, which we learned on this very podcast <laughs> is a very canny move because then he can show the ref when it was pulled out and say, look, I tucked my shirt and this guy pulled my, my shirt. So one of my favorite facts about Jacory. It doesn't untuck itself, you know, and Byron Medcalf is a national sports writer for ESPN and contributing columnist for the star tribune uh, also lives in the twin cities. Although you grew up in Milwaukee, is that, that's correct. I believe. Yeah, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, born and raised. But I've been here for about 20 years, so I think Minnesota claims me now. So. <laughs> yes. Uh, 20 years is a good long time. <laughs> Myron, let's start with you. And uh, I just want to, you know, learn a little bit about your sort of path to sports writing, like how you got into this career, if it was something you, you know, sort of always envisioned yourself doing or, or how you got where you are right now. Oh, yeah. I, mean, I was always interested in sports, played sports. Uh, obviously wasn't as good at sports as Ja'Cory is, but I was – you know, good enough to get a uh, partial scholarship to Minnesota State Mankato to play football, run track. And there's where I sort of developed my love for journalism um, and just sort of pursued that, the school paper. They got hired by the Star Tribune. My first job was outside sports. I was like a night cops reporter, listening to the police scanners, showing up to crime scenes and doing a lot of the dirty work. Uh, and then a few years after that, I, I became a sports writer covering college basketball for the Star Tribune. And that's where things sort of just kind of took off uh, for me. And uh, about 10 years ago, ESPN called me, had an opportunity. So left the Star Tribune and been doing that ever since. Nice. So that that early job of doing, you know, like listening to the police scanner and going out to to, to do stuff, I would imagine that is like a real boot camp for, for journalism. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a boot camp to learn about people, honestly, you know, because, I mean, I wasn't covering – uh, fun things, you know, I was covering shootings and homicides and drownings and all kinds of stuff like that. And uh, a lot of times you get to these events before the families get there, you have to talk to the police, you have to talk to neighbors. So you just have to learn how to deal with people, you know? And so I think that probably was the best part of that gig is, you know, today I talk to a lot of athletes, that's the job. 
but they're just people to me. You know, I mean, they're people who have these amazing jobs that everyone sort of uh, would love to do one day, but uh, they're, they're people. And I think they're no different for me than those mothers and fathers I met when I was, you know, listening to the police scanner as a 22-year-old. So it just teaches you a lot uh, about community and how to relate to people. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think the thing with, I mean, it's one of the things I love about doing this podcast and, and doing my job is getting to know the, the players and everything like that and, and see them as people. I came, I came from doing NBA uh, journalism before I started working for Minnesota United. And, and as you get used to just talking to people, you're like, this, these are the stories, like the personal yeah. stories are the ones that, that, are really, that are really fun to talk about. I want to get to Ja'Cory's story. I had one more follow-up for, for your, your sort of resume. Uh, becoming a columnist again now at the Strib, um, uh, covering cultural diversity issues and, and, and things like that. What, um, give me a little bit of background into how you got to that position after being at the Strib, going to ESPN, and then coming back to do columnist work. Yeah, I mean, they, uh, they called me about a month after George Floyd uh, died and wanted to have a conversation about whether or not it was something that was possible. Uh, I mean, contractually at the time, it wasn't being with ESPN, but took it to ESPN, was like, hey, I think in this city there's a need. And I think this is something that's important. And um, thankfully, ESPN said, yeah, go for it, do it. And they they supported me. So um, that's how it ended up happening, just sort of having a conversation with the Star Tribune, then figuring out the logistics of it, and then just sort of doing something that hasn't been done. You know, I, I, I don't know how to do it because there's no real platform. So I'm kind of just doing it in real time. You know what I mean? Sure. So that was like a bit of my hesitation was like, yeah, what if I'm terrible at this, right? <laughs> but, um, you know, you just sort of learn as you go get to talk to people, meet people. And it's just been an incredible opportunity. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of good things come from places where you're not really sure if it's going to work, but you just, <laughs> you just got to try and see what happens. Right. Story so, of my life. <laughs> about stories, right? <laughs> yeah. So, so Ja'Cory, um, I wanted to get from you also. I mean, I know we've talked a couple of times. I don't think we've really talked about your sort of path to professional soccer and how you got there. And it's one of the things I was interested in because you know, soccer in this country, I think has an image as sort of a, you know, a suburban white sport, you know, it's obviously a global game, but you know, people think of people in the suburbs playing soccer. And, um, you know, just for you, as, as, as a black man and coming into this in, into soccer, and like what your experience was like with encountering the game and how, how you fell in love with it. Yeah, so um, grew up in the suburbs of DC, you know, um, parents, like just threw me into soccer, just because it was like the spring sport with the boys and girls club. So it was kind of just getting me involved with a bunch of different things. I was in football, I was playing basketball, baseball. Um, they actually swore that I was going to be a, ba- a baseball player, but, um, you know, a little track in there, some karate. So it was like kind of all over the board with all the different sports. Um, you know, kind of as I grew up, like other sports kind of went by the wayside. I was missing, you know, football practice because I wanted to go to soccer games and um, that sort of thing. And um, probably by probably about fifth grade, uh, it was that's about like 11 that's when I was like all right I think I'm gonna try to make a go at this soccer thing um and just kind of throw it down like I want to be a professional soccer player in 10 years um just kind of like a wishful thinking and just kind of kept chopping away at it so yeah just a big commitment from my parents to drive to the place to you know um kind of the best team in the area when I was younger was out in Bethesda, Maryland, which is kind of like 45 minutes away from where I was living at. Um, and so that was like quite a drive to do three, four times a week with the parents. And hopefully there's like some kids that were carpooling with this, but um, yeah, it's a com- tremendous commitment from them. And 
high school. I did four years at Wake Forest, graduated with a degree. Very important for me because I, you know, education was big time for my parents. You know, there was no uh, going out to play until the homework was finished or I made sure the, finish, the homework was finished right afterwards. Um, so got did four years at Wake Forest and then Alice, which was definitely a learning curve and have a little money now. So we're trying to be smart financially and dealing with the life, the rigors of being a professional athlete, you know, um, more so mentally than actually on the field. So a lot of, you know, mental obstacles to overcome. And, you know, now I'm here. Yeah. So that, that there's a lot there. There's, I, I was, yeah. first thing I was interested in, first thing I was interested in, because I remember I talked to uh, Kai Kamara, uh, who's on the team last season, and he talked about growing up and, and how volleyball was really the thing that he was into. Um, but he played like every sport. And I've heard this from a lot of, of athletes. Um, I, I was fortunate enough to talk to Maya Moore once and she talked about how she just played every sport growing up because her parents just wanted to get rid of the energy that was in her. And so, uh, <laughs> and so she sort of did everything. Um, but you know, like nowadays, I feel like we see a lot of kids getting specialized sort of very young into certain sports. Do you feel like there's a benefit, um, Jacory, for playing a lot of different sports before you make that decision? Uh, I think so, just because it's, you know, I was, you know, just trying a little bit of everything and, you know, I actually wanted to be basketball. You know, I was good at baseball. You know, I still have hoops. Maybe the Wizards will call me one, one of these if I grow their foot. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think it does have its value to just try different things and just gather more so just experience um, using various muscles. And uh, I think there's some similarity between all the sports. So if you're working on something that's in back and transfer, necessarily think you have to specialize at such a young age to ultimately become professional. Um, I just have to put in the work rate and, you know, actually and, and want it and, you know, your way certain days and uh, it can all happen. Uh, I some value and just trying different sports just to, just to have fun. You're still a kid. So Myron, like you've, you cover, um, college basketball, you said you played football, obviously you have experience in, in sort of different sports. Do you have, what, what's your, do you have any soccer connection? I know he sort of <laughs> invited you on, I think without finding out like what your engagement with soccer was, but what's, what's your soccer experience? Listen, I, I played on the fifth grade team with my buddies and I couldn't dribble at all, but like defensively I was tough. I was intimidating. <laughs> right. Like, like I picked up a few yellow cards, you know, but like, I patrolled, man, my zone. I patrolled it. So, uh, you know, yeah, it's the enforcer. <laughs> yeah, but it's a sport I really, it's a sport I really respect. I mean, the agility of it, the the conditioning element of it. Um, and then I think, like, as Americans, we're kind of spoiled, obviously, in terms of what we think about the rest of the world. We think the world sees our football as, like, this big sport, and we celebrate it that way. But then when you watch, for me, the World Cup and you see, like, wow, countries getting behind uh, these national teams, you just understand it's on a completely different different level. I mean, it's on my bucket list. My bucket list is definitely going to the World Cup, um, going to, a, a, a you know, like a big game like that because I just think there's power in that. So I really respect the sport. I'm learning more about the sport. I've been to a uh, a game, you know, with you all. And it, I think it's still the best experience in the Twin Cities in terms of if you want to be a fan and you want to go to a game, I think that that to me is the coolest experience to to be a part of in the Twin Cities. So uh, it's, it's a sport I really like. Yeah. 
And so sort of as you're alluding to, like with with the scale of soccer globally, it's it's such a it's such a big force. It's a slightly smaller force, you know, in, in the United States, uh, obviously. But it's it's within the fan group that is here. It is very big culturally and socially. It's a huge, huge. part of these people, people's lives. Um, follow up with you, Myron, to just sort of ask about you know, what you think the role of, of sports can be in things like social change and, and, and sort of, we've seen a lot of movements. Um, maybe Jacory can speak a little bit to the black players for change and MLS and sort of groups that are doing work to sort of bring that forward. You know, your world obviously crosses between these two things in a lot of ways. Like what do you, do you see a role for sports in bringing about that kind of change? Yeah. I think first and foremost, if you're an athlete and you have a perspective on these issues. You have to be comfortable speaking out about them. Um, and that's not everybody. What I'm against is trying to make people feel as if they're forced to do anything. Because that's not realistic and it's not fair. You know, uh, a lot of these athletes are Jacory's age. I mean, they're younger than 30 years old. And to, to imply that, like, they've got to carry the weight of the world on their shoulder, shoulders while also being professional athletes, I don't, I don't know that that's fair. But, but I do think for those who are comfortable and who want to take on a cause and who want to speak out, they just have this incredible platform because people will listen and people hear them and they hear athletes and listen to athletes in ways that they don't listen to anybody else. I mean, it's, it's you know, athletes and rock stars. Like those are the people who, when they speak, people listen. Mm-hmm. So there is a power in that for sure. And to, to me, everything that's happened since George Floyd the movement would not be what it is without athletes, you know, without athletes stepping up and saying, Hey, this matters to me. Uh, I want people to understand that we care about these issues too. It would have never unfolded to this degree. I think one of the most powerful things that happened after George Floyd was seeing Carl Anthony towns and a bunch of local athletes, you know, pro in the protests in the middle of that, uh, talking about what they saw, how they felt. Uh, you, you couldn't do that with just average Joe's. So I do think athletes have a, there's a power in that. But, but I also think, you know, it's not my job to tell anybody, black or white, who's an athlete, how to pursue this, you know, how to address these issues. But for those who are comfortable, uh, there's just a certain power in there that you can't emulate anywhere else. Yeah, I think that we had um, last week on the podcast, we had Jeremy and Justin Sutherland, um, who are two brothers. Justin Sutherland does, uh, is a culinary consultant at Allianz Field and runs the Handsome Hog in St. Paul. And Jeremy has a clothing line called um, Hybrid Nation, uh, both really about, you know, sort of diversity and, those, and, and, and causes like that. And in that conversation, we talked to him about like uncomfortability and sort of not necessarily not, you know, not, you don't, not doing things that you don't want to do, but like going into some uncomfortability and being okay with like having conversations like that and saying like, you know, it's okay. We're going to make mistakes along the way, but we need to start talking and, and doing some of that work. Um, and Jacory, that was, maybe you could talk a little bit about, you know, the, the, your decision to sort of speak out on this uh, after George Floyd and how, how you came around to that, because I know it's, it, that, was a, that was a big thing for you. Yeah, I mean, the initial reasoning to write what I did after George Floyd was more therapeutic, I guess, in a selfish way. Um, you know, kind of just, you know, I think writing has that power just to get your thoughts out on paper and then you're not really thinking about them anymore. They're not bouncing around in your head. So um, that was kind of the main reason for it. And a, a couple of people, um, some friends and 
uh, texting me like, oh, you should speak out about it. You know, trying to use my platform. Like you said, like athletes are the ones, you know, we're on TV every weekend. You know, um, I don't think Ja'Cory Hayes, the regular person, is able to be on this podcast. It's, you know, because I'm a soccer player from Minnesota United. Um, so, you know, recognizing that because of the position I'm in right now, you know, I'm a soccer player right now, then I'm afforded these opportunities to be able to speak and um, people will listen to me. Whereas, you know, in a few years, that might not be the case. Um, but yeah, it was very, um, yeah, just wrote that just to, you know, get something out there. Um, you know, I was blown away by how people reacted to it. Um, didn't necessarily expect people to, you know, resonate so well with it, but, um, yeah, it was, it was more just like selfishly trying to get my own thoughts out of my head and, um, try to, understand the whole situation and i think the whole country was doing that uh, for that period and you know hopefully the the conversations the talks keep moving forward because it's 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 not over with just because it was the last year um or just because we have a new president in office like there's still so many various human rights issues and you know racial issues in this country that are still persistent yeah it's it's hard to say you know, obviously it's, it's hard to see the pace of change, you know, again, like it was last year, but that it's still, it's still really close in a lot of ways. Um, Ja'Cory, do you feel like you, from your perspective, have seen change that has, has there's been steps? I mean, I was looking back at your, uh, the, the statement you wrote and you, you had said, as a country, we have to address our whole history, acknowledge how this country built its wealth, how this country has failed African-Americans consistently, and its citizens who are consistently marginalized before we can ever say without hypocrisy, we are the shining country on the hill. And you sort of close by saying, you know, we need to keep making change. Um, it, that's hard to measure sometimes. Like, but do you feel like you have seen anything that resembles like change that's substantive that's going to last? Um, you know, it's, it's positive signs. We can point back to, you know, how the number of people that came, went out and vote and voted in the fall. Um, you know, there's, been various initiatives to get more people of diversity onto, you know, boards or into positions of power. So those are definitely, um, you know, good initial steps, but I feel like it's, it's still like one of the, like, you can't take your foot off the, off the gas there and, you know, things can quickly return back. You know, I think I was reading something that they're still trying to enforce these voting uh, restrictions to make it harder to vote in, you know, the certain states that, you know, didn't swing one way or the other. Um, so it's, I feel like it's a, a daily fight that, and hopefully, you know, the whole country views it that way too, that they, like, we can't just take a break just because, uh, we, we got one result or, you know, s some small substantive change has happened, but, uh, it's, it's these little changes that add up over time. Yeah. Yeah. Myron, same, same sort of question for you from your perspective, having started this, especially starting this column just after George Floyd's death and. You know, like what have what have you seen? I've seen that people don't want to talk about racism. They're they're sort of afraid of the word. Um, and when you're black, you don't have a choice. You, you live it. And, and I think to what Decor is talking about systemic racism and long time racism. It, it being black is sort of like this. Your, your grandfather's walking down the street and somebody trips him and he falls. He breaks his leg. And when he breaks his leg, he loses his construction job. And when he loses that job, he can't send his kids to college. So he grows up in poverty. The kids grow up in poverty. Then the next generation after them, because they couldn't go to college, they also grow up in poverty. And then you look around their community and go, wait a minute. 
Somebody tripped your grandfather too? Did somebody trip mine? And then you go someone else. Wait a minute. Someone tripped your grandfather and he fell and broke his leg? And they go, yeah, that happened to me too. And then all of a sudden people come around you and they go, oh my goodness, I can't believe you broke your leg. I want to acknowledge that you did break your leg and that that was harmful to you. Meanwhile, when you're black, you're going, well, wait a minute. Somebody tripped me. I didn't just stumble and fall and break my leg. This didn't just happen out of nowhere. Someone tripped me. And that's the part that I feel like a lot of people don't want to address. Someone tripped me. And that, to me, is the thing you have to highlight if you're going to have a real conversation about Black History Month and a real conversation about racism. It's, these things didn't just happen in a vacuum. Uh, there were people, there were laws, there were policies, there were systems that made it more difficult for people who aren't white in this country to achieve things, to, to move forward in life. And I think until we get toward the point where people are comfortable really, really having a real conversation about racism, instead of just responding to the latest thing they've seen on the internet or on TV, because it's fine if you march in the streets, there's value in that. But I'd rather see people protest at their own tables in their homes and in their group chats, you know, and in their workplaces. Like to me, that's where you have to police racism. Anybody can post something on Instagram and say, I'm against racism. But are you against it at the Thanksgiving table? Because that to me is the real test. Like, are you willing to stand up for it when there's nobody around to celebrate you? And I think we have a long way to go before we get to that point. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think, oh, go ahead, Jacory, please. Yeah, so I think you were beginning to touch on, uh, so we, and at some point it have to be like reparations, right? Like it has to be uh, like, it, there's only so much of acknowledging and then, all right, let's like forget about it and all move forward, kumbaya, holding hands. You're saying the ultimate solution would have to be reparations, right? I think, I mean, it has to, you have to restore something at some point. Uh, and I think, you know, you have to figure out what exactly that looks like. That is important. However, acknowledgement still matters a lot because I think people assume there's acknowledgement and there isn't. Like real acknowledgement is saying this happened to you because of racism specifically. Like it doesn't say this happened to you. You know what I mean? I think that to me is the challenge. And I think unless it's acknowledged and unless we accept that racism is something that has put so many people in this position, has affected generations and generations, then you're just bound to repeat these things over the course of history. So to me, even if you have these restorative policies that come about, we're going to do yeah, this right. for the community or we're going to do that for the, the community, all those things are important. But to me, they don't change what can happen in the future if the policies aren't rooted in racism happened here and we don't want it to happen again. But if it's just handing people stuff because you don't want to feel guilty, I'm against that. Like, I'm not going to police guilt. If you feel guilty, that's, that's fine. But African-Americans, because of racism, aren't worried about feeling guilty. They're worried about being killed. And like, those to me are the real conversations that have to really happen before we can move to that step of, okay, what does reparations really look like? Like, what does restorative justice really look like, in my opinion? Yeah, absolutely. I think the the you know that's one of those things that I think American American society has been bad at acknowledging. You know how we got to this point, which Jacory touches on in, in in his statement. You know, it's one of those things that, like, in the wake of, you know, World War II, Germany had like a Truth and Reconciliation Commission that really went through and sort of was like, this is what happened, 
and there's a lot of resistance to just being, and it's, it's, it's a fantastic point that just saying like, well, we're giving you some more stuff doesn't do anything unless it's, it's sort of grounded. And this is an understanding of why this is, why you need this stuff. Um, before our last conversation with, with Jacory and Mason, I had read um, Ta-Nehisi Coates's um, case for reparations, which talking, talking about redlining and, and all of that stuff. And it's, it's an eye opener. It's another, it's one of those things that I would recommend anybody go read to really, I think that's one of the best things I've read that shows sort of the systemic element of systemic racism. It's easy to sort of go systemic racism. And it's like, well, we can't see it. We can't, you know, that really shows like specific policies that executed that have gotten us to this place, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I, and, and I think, to that point, it can't just be black folks, you know? Like, people keep asking me, like, what do, you, what do we do about racism? I get those emails every day. I get DMs from people every day. Like, white people need to talk to white people about racism, you know, <laughs> at the end of the day. Like, you don't have to talk to me. Uh, I, I told you how I feel. You know where I stand. But do you talk to the people that you're afraid to talk to? Like, are there stories in your own families, in your own communities, where people were complicit? Or perhaps they did things that were blatantly racist and harmful that you've kind of just buried, you know, collectively and said, we don't talk about that stuff anymore. You know, that to me is what has to happen in the white community is like those conversations have to happen, not because George Floyd died or because you're waiting for the next thing to happen or because Ja'Cory or myself get up and say, hey, racism matters. Like that has to happen because you really care at the end of the day, but when you bring up racism, people get really defensive. It's interesting, there's a littering challenge in my neighborhood, right? And there's this group of people who are picking up the litter. And if they put up leaflets in the community and said, hey, everybody, let's deal with this littering problem, we're against pollution. My entire neighborhood would say, yes, let's stop this. This is harmful to everybody. It doesn't matter who's doing it, we need to deal with it. But if you change that to racism and said, hey, racism is happening in my community, you get people who would say, well, I'm not doing it. What makes you think I'm guilty of, right? So that's the change that has to happen in order to really address some of these issues. Yeah, I think that that harmful to everybody thing is also is also really important, like for people to understand that it's not just like, you know, obviously um, some people benefit from racist policies, but overall, it 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 hurts the society and the productivity of society as a whole. You know, like it like holding down one group of people. Like doesn't you can elevate everything if if everybody can get in this together? I think, and that's something that's not appreciated. Well, it, well, and well, the truth is though, but you know, people have been beneficiaries of racism, so they value the benefits of it more than they think about the collective good, sure. because they understand that whether they want to admit it or not, being white comes with a benefit in this country, and conversations about racism and being against racism and changing these things make some of those people, not all, think, okay, but what am I going to lose? Whereas African-Americans year after year, generation after generation, just keep looking at the tally of the things they've lost, the things that have been taken, because that's just the norm in society. So the minute they go, well, wait a minute, this shouldn't continue to happen. People go, well, well, what do you want me to do about it? What they're really saying is, I don't want to give up my stuff to help you. And that's the real conversation. Yeah. Yeah, that's a tough one. I mean, I'm like, I was, I was going to move over to Jacory and, and, and ask about those conversations, but sort of to your point, it's like, that's not really your job. It's like, <laughs> white people should be talking to each other, as, as Martin said. But, they got to have these combos too, man. Yeah, yeah. But uh, Jacory, you're just, you know, feedback on, on that. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I'm sitting here just preaching amen and <laughs> and holding on to every word that Myron's saying. He's he's a thousand percent right. Like, you know, it's um it's, it's generations of this stuff and we've talked about systemic racism and um it it builds up over time. But it's like that because of the system that we have, the capitalistic system of, you know, trying to climb and claw your way to the top and uh you know, once you're at the top, you're not going to be looking at like, oh, no, no, I did this all by my hard work and all by myself. Like, why should I I give you a handout to get to where I'm at? But it's like, you know, there was policies that ended up helping you that got you to where you're at or, you know, the way society was set up or operated at that time or at this time now that helped you get to that point. So it's, um, yeah, I think it, racism kind of crawls into the capitalism that crawls into something else that is so interwoven that, uh, you know, a lot of parts of this country need to like look in the mirror and, and fix itself. Yeah, for sure. It's, I mean, it's very, <laughs> it is like you said, woven through everything and, you know, the, the system of capitalism, which is, you know, the, getting what you can. And even if it's at the expense of someone else is certainly, certainly undergirds, you know, a lot of those, those issues as well. Um, as far as, you know, having a voice and bringing that voice, um, you know, to talk about this kind of stuff, I wanted to ask you, Myron, about the sort of, I was reading some of your columns uh, and, and sort of the role of the journalist in an age when everybody has a platform, sort of there's this social media age and everybody can just pop off and say whatever they want uh, and get an audience for it. Um, and you had written, if it's just me telling you my two cents, then it's just a Facebook page. I think it has to be more than that. So your role just is doing more than just simply, you know, more than being more than a Facebook page. Like, what do you think is the responsibility it takes to do that kind of stuff? Uh, just humanizing uh, and highlighting the community. I think that's all it is. I have a platform and I can lend my platform to other people's voices. And I think that's my only real role. Um, if I just make it about myself and all of my hot takes and things I think, then it's selfish, right? But I think just elevating voices in the community and just making sure that people know they matter. I think that's the first step in so many of these things is, is people don't realize that they matter because they don't see themselves represented in mainstream media. I'm not one of those reporters who are like, oh my goodness, I can't believe people don't trust the media. I'm one of those reporters who's like, yeah, I can see everything that's happened in the media that would make you question what we're doing, right? We haven't exactly earned that sort of undeniable loyalty. So I'm just trying to highlight the community, people in the community, give them a voice, give them a platform and, and just say, hey, you matter. Your story matters because it's a part of this community. Like I, the, the pressure that Ja'Cory and I face as African-Americans who are successful, quote unquote, whatever that means, is I think when you're white and successful, no one comes to you and says, you've got to speak up. You've got to lead us. You've got to you've got to represent. So many people who don't have a platform stand up and say something. But when you're black, oh, I guarantee Ja'Cory's heard it a million times. I know I have. You feel this pressure to stand up and speak and to say something and to do something because you understand how many people before you were not given an opportunity to have a platform. So you don't want to waste it. But there's also a lot of pressure that comes with that. So for me, success with this column will be if people in the community feel like I'm listening to them because a lot of people are heard, but nobody listens to them. There's a difference. And if they understand that I'm here to help and I'm here to communicate that we exist and we matter. 
And if that's the only thing I do, I think maybe that is success because that alone is something that is not acknowledged enough, in my opinion. Yeah, it, it's sort of one of the a thing that can sort of seem like a catch-22, I think, about, you know, Black History Month, because, you know, you're sort of celebrating the idea of Black excellence, right? But also, you don't have to be excellent. Like, you're, like everybody's a human being. Like, obviously, it's like you look at the achievements of, of, of Black Americans and you want to highlight, you want to hold those people up. Yes. But, like, there's tons of people where it's like, it's enough to just be a human being, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, and... You know, they also gave us the shortest month, right? No, I'm just kidding. But, but, but I think, you know, like, hey, here's your 28 days. Uh, but, but it's it's interesting to me. I remember being in school, and they tried to diversify Black History Month. So they brought in this dude who didn't tell the story of the gingerbread man. He told the story of the cornbread man, right? And the cornbread man was, like, supposed to be the Black version of the gingerbread man. And this was my school's idea on how to approach Black History Month. None of us learned anything that day. We were too busy laughing about something called the cornbread man. Like, what story is this? So my challenge with Black History Month, to your point, is I love to celebrate Black culture and achievement, and I understand that, like, this is the month where a lot of people are going to focus on it and forget about it. And if that's all you have, then I love to see that investment and that people are paying attention. At the same time, it also suggests that we're sort of this inconsequential element of American history. And that's the part I don't like. African-Americans have fought in every single war that the United States has ever been involved in. African-Americans have invented things. African-Americans have been scholars. Like we've been here, we do this. So you don't want it to be stuffed into one month. But as I get older, the more and more I'm like, you know what? I don't like that part of it, but I am glad to see the investment and that people are taking to say, okay, let's highlight some of these things. Yeah, it, it, it's not it's not entirely dissimilar from something we touched on earlier with like an incident like George Floyd's uh, death happens and it becomes a flashpoint. It's personal. Um, and then, you know, you sort of think, though, like, why do you need this? Like, well, this happens all the time. Like, why is it this one that that provokes this outrage? And how do you keep that going and take it beyond of what the initial thing is? The the February being the shortest month, this is why I'm picking this month to not drink. So that I, my my drive <laughs> my drive February, not my drive January. So um, yes, <laughs> um, but uh, Jacory, like just just along those lines of sort of your view of of. Black History Month, um, you know, any experiences with the cornbread man growing up for you? No, I never heard that one before. I was laughing a little bit about that. I was too. <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess when we talk about, and you know, Myron was talking about, you know, athletes speaking out, being comfortable much earlier, um, it's, it's all about, you know, if you've done, not necessarily done your homework, but if you feel comfortable to speak out and using a platform like that and if you're educated on the topic if you're if you're not then it's you feel no pressure to actually speak and um i think so many times in the past uh you know so many black athletes were kind of the the forerunners for communications to the white world it was you know muhammad ali's the entertainers as well just to trying to speak out and um, do the thing. So now it's like the onus is put on present day athletes to kind of assume that same role. And, um, you know, that's not necessarily the case if you don't want to have that. Um, but I think it all comes down to like, if you're doing your own research and, you know, educating yourself and feel like you want to speak on those things or you're kind of aware of what's going on in society, then, you know, have that and, and 
use your voice and use your platform. All right, so we're 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 running out of time. I do want to end with with a little more uh, celebration. Something I've 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 already asked a couple people about um, uh, a recommendation of 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 some 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 black arts and black culture, films, music, stuff you've been into recently that you just want to give a shout out to say like go check this out. Um, Myron, I'll I'll start by asking you. You had a great article about about um, black music, uh, yeah. saying that music is your life force. I'm just going to read the quote. Can I read the quote? Yeah. Music is my life force, the warmth that pulls me through the chaos and the stillness, refusing to let me drown. I've always turned to black music for inspiration. It's the tangible testament of blackness and its power. And it's also a living mantra. The heaviness in this life will never take our voices or our swagger. I love that quote. Um, so um, what, can you, what can you recommend for us, music or otherwise? Uh, I'm listening again to the Notorious B.I.G. Ready to Die album. Uh, a, a lot of people, reporters and journalists will tell you that they learned reading Shakespeare and I did some of that, but honestly, I learned how to write from rap and hip hop. And it, to me, rappers are the greatest reporters in the history of the country. Uh, they were reporting on what was happening in the inner city before anybody cared. And I think just lyrically, it's it's a story about a young man and a life that he's trying to leave. And, and it, it highlights the perils of systemic racism and poverty and all the things attached to that. And I I just really love that that album kind of shaped me, honestly, in terms of like how to tell the story and and like what that meant. And then movie, if you haven't seen Judas and the Black Messiah, you need to see that about Fred Hampton, young Fred Hampton, former member of the Black Panther uh, Party. I'm guessing they're going to win every award. But Judas and the Black Messiah, maybe the best movie I've seen in the last five years. Oh, excellent. Good. I have that on my I'm, I'm planning to see it. I have not gotten to it yet. You need uh, to do it. Okay, I certainly will. Uh, Jacory, what have what have yeah. you got to recommend for us? <laughs> Stole that right from under me. I was going to say Judas <laughs> and the Black Messiah. You know that it touches on you know classism, touches on um, racism. You know, touches some of the systemic racism that we talked about with the FBI trying to keep Fred Hampton down. Uh, and you know, it's not like I'm ruining the plot here, but murdering him. Um, you know, uh, so it touches on so many of the topics that we kind of skimmed the surface on today. Um, and then I always got to plug my, my man, James Baldwin. Um, you know, I feel like any, anything that he's written, all of his interviews, I kind of just try to hang on to every word. Um, he's very insightful and, um, I've learned so much reading him and I feel like uh, a lot of people can, you know, learn so much from him as well. Excellent. Well, Myron and Jacory, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, thanks for having us. Yeah, it's been great. Uh, Thanks, everybody out there, for joining us for the 130th Sound of the Loons podcast presented by Alina Health Orthopedics. Be sure to leave us a nice review on iTunes or at the very least a five-star rating and follow the team on Twitter at MNUFC. You can follow me at Steve Venturis. You can find Ja'Cory on Instagram at Debo Hayes. Is that your most active? We talked about the evils of social media. That's probably the most active. I think Twitter is more for scrolling for laughs, but I don't really post that. (laughs) I try to stay away from both. (laughs) That's how you know he's young, because I'm on Twitter all day. That's how I know you're a young dude. Yeah, I'm I'm an old man also. So so Myron's on Twitter at Medcalf by ESPN. Yep. Okay. Anywhere else you want to plug? That's about it. I'm not cool enough to be on Instagram. I don't have anything to show. (laughs) <laughs> it's all food photos for me like i started cooking in this pandemic and i'm just like now it's just now i'm just you know aspiring you know food food photo journalist uh, a lot of good bread idea. my stories are in there <laughs> <laughs> good idea good idea <laughs> all right apologies as always to richard wagner and remember 
There's only one person in this whole world like you, and people can like you exactly as you are.